This is a podcast where I talk to people with disabilities to hear their stories. I wouldn't expect anyone to know what life is like for someone who can't walk, can't see, or can't hear. But we have a responsibility to learn and grow throughout our lives. And this podcast is meant to help to see what life is like for someone on the other side. Welcome to Ability. On this episode, I talk to my pal, Tania Folk. Let's get started. So tell me a bit about yourself. A bit about myself. Well, I am 38 years old from New York. And when I say that, everybody thinks, you know, big city, tall building, New York. No, not, not so much. I live out on Long Island and in a smaller town on Long Island. So not many people here. I uh, went to local elementary school here, middle school, you know, that whole thing, all in pretty much the same town. So I don't get out much. I didn't even go away for college. I went to college, (laughs) but I only went like 40 minutes away and came home every night. Small town. So like the Hamptons, that's on Long Island, right? That is on Long Island. (laughs) But now I, um, I don't have enough money to live out there. (laughs) I live in a town called Miller Place and everybody's like, where is that? If you know how to get support Jeff, which is where the big ferry comes in, I'm like two towns over. So you don't live next to like Billy Joel and Mick Jagger? No, no, although (laughs) although I drove out there um, last summer and I saw Billy Joel. He was actually just walking through the the town, through this little town out in the Hamptons. I would be amazed if he could walk around anywhere without without just getting just mobbed. You know what it is though, Long Islanders, they're so used to seeing him, especially if you head out east because he lives out there. So people bump into him, I'm assuming, all the time. When did you first realize you were different? You know, this is a really, really odd question. And I've been asked it before. Well, I was diagnosed when I was when I was five. And I never, my parents never treated us any different. Although I knew my sister, you know, was getting bigger and things like that. And I had a wheelchair. So obviously that made me different so to speak but as far as my um my height goes and being a little person that I never figured out because I didn't walk and this sounds so stupid it was my senior year in high school and I decided I was gonna walk for graduation I wanted to walk across the stage to get my diploma and I um we were at rehearsal because you have to rehearse graduation apparently And I stood up and I was next to one of my best friends who was super short. He was five foot five. At least people used to tease him for being short. And I realized how much shorter I was than him. And I went home to my mom and I was like, have I always been this small? And she kind of looked at me and she, she got upset. She felt so bad because she's like, I never told you. I was like, no, you weren't supposed to tell me. You know, like, it just wasn't something I ever felt or even ever, ever noticed. Even in my house, for the most part, I was just kind of, like, crawling around on the floor or things like that. I could do what I've heard Kara refer to it as therapy walk, which was just, you know, a little from here to there, get myself to the bathroom, but never anything major. So I had never been measured against my peers, I guess you should, should or could say, or my sister. 
And that's when it first dawned on me. I was like 17 years old. And I was like, holy cow, because you know, you're sitting in a wheelchair. So you have to look up to everybody anyway. So I never made that that connection as dumb as that sounds. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, you have to rehearse high school graduation. <laughs> you can't trust those kids with anything. Yeah, right. You know, we have to make sure you know that you need to stand here and you need to walk there. Yeah, exactly. This is really complicated. And, we need to make sure. <laughs> and don't forget to shake the principal's hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did find that really funny. You know, when I graduated high school, you got to like, you know, make sure you're here and you're going to stand next to this person. You're going to walk over there. We need to have a whole rehearsal yeah. for this because, you know, you know. Because clearly I don't know when my name is called that I should that I should move forward. Yes, yes. This is this is this is too hard for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if I'm being honest, I knew several students that probably needed that. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like for you going to grade school? Grade school I was homeschooled a lot, so I was in and out of school. Because, like I said, that was the time where I had my rotting surgeries done. I was in a body cast, or what they now call a spica cast. And um, it, was, it was weird. My teachers, I liked them at the time. Looking back, I know there were things I could have done different. Because I was always in the corner. Like, always in the corner of the room. Like, somebody was going to randomly throw a ball during the middle of class, and I might get hit. So I always felt isolated from my peers and not because it was something I did to myself, but I felt like other people in the school system kept me apart from my peers, which made it difficult. I didn't get to go outside during recess, even though somebody could have pushed my wheelchair outside at least. I was like in the cafeteria and they would feed me snacks. I guess an extra Oreo was supposed to make up for the fact that all my friends were playing on the playground. I always hated recess. (laughs) hated it you know all you kids get to go have fun and i get to sit out here on the you know on this little patio area under the hot sun (laughs) well okay patio meaning that like it's just a slab of concrete but it's outside like there's no like overhead area (laughs) well yeah you know like it was outside i would have rather been inside (laughs) this is hot (laughs) and i just get to sit here and watch all these kids have fun while i sit here in the sweltering heat (laughs) true I just built up this resentment. You <laughs> and then occasionally one of the teachers would feel bad and harass one of the kids to come sit next to me. <laughs> oh, that was always fun. When the teacher would, like, force somebody to come hang out with you. It was somebody that they didn't even know if you liked. It was just this random child. And then that would mean they probably wouldn't end up liking mm-hmm. you either. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, now I'm forced to sit next to so-and-so. Yeah. Ah, fun times. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to do those over. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an astronaut. Now, I'll tell you a really sad story. I wanted to be an astronaut so bad, and I begged my mother to to, to let me go to the space camp in Florida. And it started at 12. And my mom was like, um, I don't know about that, but she finally agreed. I begged her. I was like, but there's nothing that's going to happen to my bones. It's zero gravity. It's like being in water. And so she finally agreed. And I filled up the application and I mailed it in. 
and they send you like this preliminary, you know, congratulations letter with a, a permission slip from your parent that, well, that has to be filled out by your parent and a physical form that you have to get filled out by your doctor. Well, that put me out. I sent, you know, I got the physical and my doctor wrote down there to ask if there was any medical conditions. And for whatever reason, my doctor thought he had to be honest. And they, I sent it in and my mom kind of prepared me. She's like, I don't know if they're going to let you go now and whatever. So I got my letter back. And in a nutshell, it said that they didn't deem me physically healthy enough to attend. So I couldn't go. I'm still traumatized from not being able to go to space camp. I got the astronaut part of my life out early because I have really poor vision. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I was well aware that just because of my eyes, I was never going to be a fighter pilot. So, you know, you know, the bones didn't, the bones didn't really occur to me that that was the reason I couldn't be an astronaut. It was because I couldn't fly a plane first. <laughs> that was the steps that I went through, which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that the bones weren't weren't my concern. It was that I couldn't see. They weren't my concern either. For whatever reason, my doctor feared it. I was like, "Yeah, it'll be okay. I'll break something." I'm sure they have great orthopedists in Florida. What a narc! <laughs> <laughs> you could have any job if education, cost, or physical ability weren't a factor. Just pure enjoyment. What would you most like to do? Be a neurosurgeon. What's specifically about neurosurgery? I actually, I had a stroke in 2003. And a neurosurgeon saved my life. And I became really interested in it after that. Because not only was I following up with neurosurgeons, but then that surgery left me with seizures. So I was constantly seeing neurologists and I had several now follow-up neurosurgeries. I think I've had about four and it's always been very interesting to talk to them, look at like an MRI and then see them show me where this was coming from, what they had to take out, what they had to do. And I took a neurology class in college just for the heck of it. And, um, and I just, I loved it. So that's what I would do. I'm over the astronaut thing. It makes you a bit of an expert, doesn't it? Yeah. I think so. I, I think even with, with the ortho part of my life, it's kind of like you know more than doctors now after a while. Yeah, I joked with my orthopedist the last time I saw him that they ought to give me tenure. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that I, you know, like I can read an x-ray mm -hmm. pretty well these days. Like, you know, you just... Give me a job. It's funny because I <laughs> fell down I fell down the stairs and um this was two summers ago. And it was only three stairs, it wasn't major, but it broke my ankle. And I went to my doctor and he said, Well, the x ray says your ankle's not broken. He said, But I guess I'll just ask you, is your ankle broken? I was like, Yep. Can I please have the crutches and the casts? Well, that's nice that you had that rapport with your doctor. He's been my orthosurgeon for the past 12 years. So he knows and he's very familiar with OI. He pretty much treats everybody here on Long Island that has OI, which I think there's only four of us. 
Do you find it that when you find a doctor that you like, that you stick with them forever and ever? Yeah. Or is that just no. me? <laughs> I do that too. Because I've been seeing the same dentist since 1996. So <laughs> It's funny you say that because so have I. Yeah, the last time I saw my dentist, he was going through his papers, and so that was the first time I saw him. So, which is wild. So I see a doctor basically until, until they won't see yeah. him anymore. My, um, my dentist, when I first started seeing him, it was a father and son practice, and my dentist was the son, but he was an older son. You know, he wasn't a kid. And his father retired, so then it was just him in the office. And now it's him and his son in the office, and he's about to retire. I'm like, wow. That's got to be weird. That's got to make you feel old, it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, because I've been going there since I was about 13 years old, which was 93. So when you really think about it, it's been like 26 years. So I imagine it makes my dentist feel really old, because I've been seeing him since I was two. <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> so, so he's seen me go from a literal toddler to an adult. <laughs> That's got to make him just, you know, I, I can't imagine how he lays awake at night and feels. Yeah, I never thought about it from the doctor and the dentist perspective. What was your relationship like with your parents? Okay, me and my mom were super, super close, and we always were. And I think part of it is because my mom spent so much time with me in the hospital. She would sleep there. I had all my rotting surgeries done and all of that. I was very, very young. So my mom and I spent a lot of time together. My dad, now that relationship was majorly different. My dad, I seriously can remember the first time my dad actually hugged me and it was when his mother cried. I mean, his mother died and we were all, you know, devastated going to her funeral. And that was the first time he hugged me since I was like a child. And he later admitted that he was afraid to touch me as dumb as that sounds. He was my parent lived with me every day. And he actually said to me, I was in my thirties. He said, I didn't know how to deal with you and your disorder which struck me as odd. So growing up, my, me and my dad weren't close. I really thought he didn't like me. I thought he liked my sister. They were always hanging out and doing things together and he was taking her places. And I know logically it was easier for him to take her places. You know, it's just hop out the car, you know, walk down the stairs, hop in the car, put your seatbelt on and go. I took a little more work. He had to carry me down the stairs and put the wheelchair in the car. So I almost want to say I understood that but the physical connection, the affection and things like that, I didn't get from him. What is your day-to-day -day life like? My day-to-day -day life is, it's, I hate using the word normal, but it is. You know, I get up, I'm not working right now, so I try to get out as much as I can because I kind of hate being in the house, especially in the nice weather. And so I like, go just like random places <laughs> I'll go visit my dad he's got emphysema so I try to visit him as often as I can and um that's pretty much it you know I'll get up I'll get dressed as you know <laughs> you know brush my teeth wash my face all of that and then before I know it it's like time to make dinner and I have a dog and that's about it you know watch tv here and there I write what kind of stuff do you write I journal 
I used to write a lot of poetry. I haven't done that in a long time, but I journal. I pretty much journal everything. Who inspires you or who do you look up to? For the longest time, and I guess I still do, I was so inspired by my mom. She unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago, but I always looked up to her because no matter what was thrown at her, she just, she handled it and went on with her day. You know, she didn't cry about it. She wasn't a complainer. So I always wanted to be, to emulate that. And I don't even think I had to emulate it. I think it was just something that was taught to me from a young age. It's like, you just get over it and move on. But other than that, I think I just look up to, that's a good question. I don't know, pass. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. What brings you joy? Honestly, helping other people. Helping other people. There, for me, is no better feeling than meeting somebody that has a disability or has something that they may have just been diagnosed with or something that's all new to them and saying, hey, it's not that bad. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds insurmountable, but you'll get, you know, you'll get past it. There's a a little girl and her parents that live out here on Long Island and she was diagnosed. I actually went to high school with her father. She was diagnosed with OI at two years old. And I saw a post on Facebook that he posted about something about it being like the worst day of his life or something. He just found out his daughter had this, this disease. And I reached out to him on Facebook and I was like, oh my God, Rob, that's what I have. And because we went to high school together, he had, I was able to kind of give him a different perspective. I was like, remember me in high school? Um, You know, we went to, we went to classes together and things like that. I was so, I told him, you know, it's possible. It's not the end of the world. She has type three OI. I said, and I know being two years old, it sounds like it's the end of, of everything for her. Like, but trust me, type three is what I have. It's not the end. So I like that. And I don't consider it inspiration, but I like that sort of empowerment. So if, if, if there is anybody, even with my dad with his emphysema, he was in the hospital. And I was like, listen, we'll get through this. You'll get through this. You'll beat this. It's just the type of mindset I have. And I like giving that to other people or sharing that with other people. That brings me a lot of joy. Other than that, my nieces, the two most incredible little girls ever, they bring me joy, bring me lots of joy. Nothing better than a hug from a (laughs) four-year-old. Or the laughter of a four-year-old. What is your deepest need? All right, this this is tough. My deepest need, I would honestly say, is to be loved. What comforts you, or what do you take comfort in? My family, especially my nieces, and sometimes just the stillness when everything just goes quiet and I have a moment to not think about anything, which it's hard for me to turn my brain off, but that's comforting. And my talking to my best friend, because I can talk to her about anything, no matter what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, she doesn't judge me. So I think there are people in my life that bring me the most comfort, 
But like I said, I like stillness, just the quiet of the night when the TV goes off and the lights are out and there's zero noise. And I just kind of get to just be. What do you consider your biggest accomplishment? What I consider to be my biggest accomplishment is having that stroke and fighting back and being where I am today because I should not even be alive, let alone be on my own living, you know, a daily sort of normal life because they didn't know what was going to happen after that. You know, and I hate to say, you know, oh, I went to college, I got a degree, I graduated with honors and there's all of that. But I don't want to say that was easy because I worked for that, but that in comparison to other things really seems like that was almost nothing. What's your hope for the future? To have a family. To have a family and on a on a more selfless level to be able to make a difference in the world. I haven't figured out what that means yet. But I want to find a way to make some sort of difference. How do you think people see you? And then the companion question to that is, how do you wish people would see you? I think, especially in professional situations, people see me as incapable. I really think people look at me and formulate immediately in the head a hundred things I can't do. And that's before I even open my mouth. And I really wish people would just see me. And I, like I said, I hate the word normal, but like anybody else, my challenges are just unique. But the guy next door to me has challenges. My landlord has challenges. We all do. Mine are, although they're different than somebody else's, they're not necessarily any harder. You know, we all face things. So I wish people wouldn't look at my challenges and think that, oh my God, that's so insurmountable. Because for me, they're not. Maybe for you, they are. But for me, they're not. I've lived this way my entire life. So I wish people would not automatically assume that there are things I can't do because most things I've figured out how to do them. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? Good job. Your life mattered. That was my last question, so we can be done here. I, I really appreciate you being on this episode. It was really great. I think this was some good stuff. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks to Tania for being on this episode, and thank you for listening. You can find more episodes, a lot like this one, at AbilityPodcast.com or at your podcast player of choice. Until next time, keep on rolling.